0: Throughout history, stories have captured our attention. There are stories that spark laughter, stories that bring us to tears, stories that inspire us, and some that lead to fear. But the best stories, the stories that change us are the ones that teach truth, eternal truth. Well, this morning we're um, wrapping up our series on the stories Jesus told. In two weeks... We're going to start a new series, a three-part series on how to build margins in your life so that you can do those things that are most important. And so let me encourage you to go ahead and and mark your calendar off so that you will have the margin to be here for this three-week series. Now, if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, don't worry about it. We're going to have the words on the screen so you can follow along there. But the story we're going to be looking at today as we wrap this up is in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is, is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some other people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the forum to call the the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their paid, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid those of us who who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then. And those who are first will be last. I have been blessed to have four children and six grandchildren and I have two more on the way. And over the years, I have discovered that there are some words, there are some phrases that you don't have to teach your kids. They seem to instinctively know those words and those phrases, like mine. Kids have this tendency to believe that everything is theirs. Or, do I have to? I mean, kids want to do what kids want to do. Or what about this one? It wasn't me. Kids have this natural ability to to deny culpability or cast blame. Or what about this? Can I have it? I mean, every time they go into a store, whether it's a grocery store or Walmart or the toy store, they find something they want. Or what about this one? That's not fair. Have your kids ever said that? Have you ever said that? It seems that we are born with this innate sense of justice. Each and every one of us want to be treated fairly. And when we're not treated fairly, it upsets us. And when it's God that seems to be unfair, it really upsets us. A family gives up the comfort in America to go to a difficult country to live so that they can share the love of Jesus with the people in that country. And and as they are in that process, one of their children gets sick and die simply because they don't have proper medical care. Is that fair? Or what about this man who who seeks to live a godly life. He plays by the rules. He stewards his money in a way that honors God, but then he loses his job all the while a drug dealer is living a life of luxury. Is that fair? Or what about this one? A man lives a moral life. He's faithful to his wife. He's good to his children he helps the poor but because he's never received Jesus he dies and he spends eternity separated from him and yet there's this other man who has lived as a pagan he has cheated on his wife he has been the most selfish self-centered man to live he receives Jesus on his deathbed and he goes to heaven is that fair One man tries hard his whole life, and he misses out. The other man makes a decision on his deathbed, and he gets it all. Is that fair? Is God fair? And that's what this story is all about. There is this landowner who goes out to hire some workers. And he goes to the marketplace at 6 o'clock because... The marketplace is the place that you will find day laborers. People that don't have daily jobs. And so they go to the marketplace every day seeking to pick up work because if they don't work, they don't eat. And so the landowner talks to these men at 6 o'clock and they agree to a certain wage. Just a denarius. A denarius was the amount that a Roman soldier made And so these day laborers were actually paid much better than they deserved. Well, this landowner came back at nine, he came back at 12, he came back at three, and he hired more workers, but to these workers, he he didn't agree to a price, he didn't sign a contract with them, he said, trust me to do what is good. At 5 o'clock, there was just one hour left in the work day. He goes back to the marketplace again, and there's still some guys standing around. And he said, men, why are you here? Why aren't you working? And they said, no one hired us. And he said, well, go. Work in my field. One hour later, it was time to pay the workers because you paid your daily workers every day so that they would have food to eat. And they started with the ones that were hired last. And when those guys who began to work at 5 o'clock in the afternoon who only one hour came, they received a denarius, a day's wage. Well, as you can imagine, those who had started working at 6 o'clock in the morning Were chomping at the bit. They thought, if if these men who worked one hour received a denarius, that means that we will get 12 denarius. This is the best job ever. But when they came to the front of the line, instead of getting 12 denarius, they got one denarius, just like the men who had worked only one hour. And every one of them said, that's not fair. They were ticked. And to be honest, you were thinking the exact same thing. I mean, let's be honest. If you agreed to work and you worked in the scorching heat, which is what the Bible says here, and you worked for 12 hours, and someone came and worked for one hour, and they got paid the exact same as you, you would think, this isn't fair. This landowner isn't fair. Now, this is probably the most controversial story Jesus ever told. The parable of the Good Samaritan is right up there with it, but this was so controversial because it, it went against their idea of justice and fairness. Everybody that heard that story was saying, that's not fair. And So what was Jesus teaching? Well, first of all, you need to understand that he wasn't endorsing some socialistic economic program where everyone gets paid the same. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was talking about the kingdom of God. He wasn't talking about wage scales. And he's not saying that there won't be rewards in heaven. But what we do need to understand is that rewards in heaven have more to do with our responsibilities in heaven than they have to do with the accolades that we will receive when we get to heaven. And this isn't saying that everyone gets a trophy. Everyone wins in the end. It's not saying that. And it's certainly not telling us we have to work our way into the kingdom of God. You see, to understand this story, we have to understand the context in which it was given. And to do that, we need to go back to chapter 19. In verse 16, we're told that someone came to Jesus with the question. The, the, The man who came to Jesus we know is the rich young ruler. And the question was this. What good thing must I do... To have eternal life. You see, he believed like many of us today that heaven is earned by the things that we do. If we do enough good things, then we will go to heaven. Now the first thing that Jesus did was was to try to help him realize that no one will ever be good enough. Jesus said there is only one who is good and that is God. He was letting this man know that there is nothing in us that will ever cause us to be good in God's eyes. But then Jesus says this. He says, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. The Greek text literally says, keep on keeping the commandments. In other words, never slip up, never fail, never falter. Now what this man, the rich young ruler, should have said was, that's impossible. But instead, he asked a question. He said, Which ones? I mean, there are so many commandments. Which commandments do I have to keep? And so Jesus pulled out the big ones. He said, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your mother and father, love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, don't ever falter, don't ever slip up, don't ever fail. And the rich young ruler said, I've obeyed them all. What else do I need to do? And let's stop right here for a minute. The Bible makes it very clear that no one can ever be made right with God by obeying the law. I want you to look at me. The Bible makes it clear that none of us, Absolutely no one is ever going to be made right with God by obeying God's laws. In Romans 3, it says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. When we look at the law, it lets us realize how far we fall from keeping the law. Paul said the exact same thing in Galatians 2. And in Romans 4, he said this, the only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. In other words, the only way those of us who are born into sin, and that's all of us, the only way we can ever avoid breaking the law is if there is no law. So let me ask you a question. When you look at the law of God, when you look at what God commands us to do, when you look at how God commands us to live, do you say to yourself, I'm pretty good, or do you say, I'm in deep need? What should have shown this man his need caused him to think he was okay. And so Jesus said, okay, go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have riches in heaven. The Bible says that this man went away sad because he was very rich. Now what was Jesus saying to him here? Was he saying that you need to totally surrender to me to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, I believe that's part of it. The Bible makes it very clear that salvation involves surrendering our life to Jesus. Jesus said this over and over and over. But I believe there's something more here. I believe Jesus was saying that that if we want to enter eternal life, we must turn a loose of everything that we trust in and trust in Jesus. And if we do that, then we can have riches in heaven. But this man couldn't do that. He was too self-sufficient. He was too self-confident to let go and, and just trust God. And so he walked away. And when he did, Jesus and his disciples had a discussion. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, it's harder for a rich man to to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now the Persians had a saying that, that said, who can make an elephant pass through the eye of a needle? Well, no one can. Well, a camel was the biggest animal in Judea, so Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, it's impossible. Now, some of you are saying, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. But you need to understand, the disciples realized that what Jesus was saying applied to everyone. You see, the Jews, like many people today, believed that riches and prosperity and material blessings were a sign of God's blessing on life because of their obedience. And so the disciples were saying, if this rich young ruler who has been so obedient that his life is so blessed can't go to heaven, who can? And in verse 25, Jesus said, Or in verse 25, they said, who in the world can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Who can be saved? No one. It's absolutely impossible. There is absolutely no way on our own any of us can be saved. There is nothing that we can do to earn our place in heaven. No amount of good works, no religious deeds, no acts of penance will ever get us there. But then Jesus said, but with God, everything is possible. In other words, what you can never do, God can do for you. Now it's here that, that Peter makes a statement and he asks a question. He says, we've given up everything to follow you, what will we get? And let me say that again. Here's Peter, you know, the one that always had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth, to speak before he thought. He said, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? Now, they had given up everything. Peter and his brother Andrew were, were two of the first to start following Jesus, and they gave up everything. They gave up their fishing business When Jesus called them, they never looked back. But maybe, just maybe, this right here was a momentary look back. Because here was this young man who had left everything. Or here was this young man who had everything. And they had nothing. And they started thinking in their mind, is it worth it? I'm sure when when Peter started out, he didn't envision life with Jesus exactly like it was. Sure, he had seen miracles. He had seen healing. He had a front row seat at the greatest truths ever shared. But when he signed up, he assumed that the kingdom Jesus was talking about would come soon and would come in his lifetime. I doubt three years later, he expected to be wandering from place to place, wondering when Jesus was ever going to make his move, when he was going to overthrow the powers and establish his kingdom. You need to understand, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He just didn't understand what the Messiah was going to do. So we asked Jesus, What are we going to get? Is it worth it? I imagine every one of us here who have given up anything to follow Jesus have asked that question from time to time. When we have given up temporal pleasure to invest our resources in the kingdom, we ask, is it worth it? When we see others choose a lifestyle that we reject because of our commitment to Christ, we ask ourselves, is it worth it? When we answer God's call and and it seems like we get more grief than glory, we ask, is it worth it? And when we are put in prison simply because of our faith, like Pastor Andrew Brunson, we ask ourselves, is it worth it? But listen... It is. The only thing is the dividends may not, probably won't be paid out in this life. Jesus said they will be paid out when the world is made new and Jesus sits on his throne. And then he said, and you will sit on thrones with me. Jesus makes it clear that Peter and Andrew, James and John and Philip and all the disciples that were there and all the disciples throughout the ages will receive a hundred times more than they have ever given up plus eternal life. But as Jesus was speaking, he recognized that Peter and the others probably didn't understand Their pride began to build as they thought about sitting on those thrones and finally getting the respect that they deserved, finally being at the front of the line, finally sitting in the seat of honor. So Jesus says something. He says the last will be first, and the first will be last. And then Jesus tells this story. A story about workers in the field, some who go to work in the morning, some who who go to work in in the mid-morning, some who go to work in the afternoon, others who go to work at the very end of the day, and yet when the pay is divvied out, they all get the same thing, which is far more than they deserve. Now go back to the question the rich young ruler asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did these workers do? The only thing that any of these workers did was answer the call of the landowner. The first group signed a contract. They had an agreement with the landowner. They said, we'll go to work if you pay us this amount, and the landowner agreed. But every other group simply trusted the goodness of God. And they received the same thing that the workers who had been in the field all day received. Listen. If you treat your relationship with God like a contract, you will do one of two things. First of all, you will always wonder whether you have done enough. Whether you have worked hard enough. Whether you have been faithful enough. Or second... You will develop spiritual pride as you look at what you've done compared to what others have done. You see, if we approach God with a contract, we will have this God owes me mentality. And you need to understand that God doesn't owe us a thing but judgment. Did you hear me? God owes you judgment. God owes you judgment. God owes you judgment. He owes you judgment. And let me tell you, He owes me judgment. That's what I deserve. God gives salvation to whomever He chooses, however He chooses it, and that's fair because the truth is none of us deserve salvation. The Bible says the soul that sins will die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Anything other than eternal death for you or for me is God's grace. Do you want what you deserve? Do you want God to be fair? If God gives you what you deserve, you are doomed. You have no hope. Praise God, God doesn't deal with us that way. He shows us grace. Someone said it this way. They said justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. God has chosen to show us mercy and grace through his son. But you need to understand that this is a limited time offer. The thief on the cross, he received that mercy and that grace hours before he died. And it was there at the cross that the payment was made so that the offer could be given. At the cross, God's justice met God's mercy and grace. At the cross, Jesus took what we deserved so that we could get what we never could deserve. And we should never look at salvation any other way because if we do, we will always wonder whether we've done enough or whether others are doing enough. Jeffrey Dahmer was one of America's most heinous serial killers. He was a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer, and a cannibal who admitted to killing and dismembering 16 people. That's what he admitted to. By all accounts, He was saved in prison. A man who sought out little boys. A man who did horrific things is in the kingdom. Now whether his conversion was authentic or not is not for us to determine. But what I know is this. God's grace and God's mercy knows no limits. There are some of you here right now Who were thinking to yourself, a man like Jeffrey Dahmer, he doesn't deserve heaven. He doesn't deserve eternal life. I don't want to be there if people like him are there. I've got good news for you. If that's the way you feel, you won't be there. Because none of us are going to be in heaven. None of us are going to receive eternal life because we deserve it. So here's the bottom line. When faith or salvation is a contract to negotiate rather than a gift to receive, we will never have peace with God. Do you want a contract where you get what you deserve Or do you want to come before God trusting His goodness and kindness and grace? For me, that's my only hope. And for you, it's your only hope. No matter what your life has looked like up to this point, no matter how good you have been, how moral you have lived, no matter what kind of accolades you have, you deserve death and judgment. You don't deserve God's grace. But God gives it. Just like He did those workers at 9, 12, and 3, and even those at 5. Aren't you glad God doesn't give us what we deserve? He gives us far better. When you think about God, how do you think about Him? Do you think about Him as this God who is fair, who is going to give you what you deserve because that's the kind of God He is? He is fair. But because he's fair, he's not going to give us what we deserve. He's going to offer us far better. But we have to receive it. We have to answer the call. We have to respond. Become a part of his family. So where are you? Have you received his grace? Have you received his mercy? Are you relying totally and completely on the goodness of God to get you to heaven? Or when you look at your life and you look at other people to your left and to your right, you think, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm okay. If that's the case, you're not. If you're relying on the grace and the mercy of God that was revealed in Jesus, that's the way you're going to get there. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? With your head bowed and with your eyes closed. If you're here today and you've been trusting in your goodness to get you to heaven. You've worked hard. You've tried. You've sought to play by the rules. You've treated people fairly. And you think somehow, some way that that's going to get you into God's kingdom. You're wrong. To enter God's kingdom, you have to rely on God's goodness. You've already failed the test. You've already flunked out. You were born into a sinful race and you've lived a sinful, rebellious life. Even your thinking that you could be good enough to somehow please God is rebellion against the goodness and the grace and the holiness of God. It's downplaying His holiness And it's building up your righteousness. None of us are good enough. Not even one. So, if you're here and you're ready to trust in the mercy and the grace of God, then I encourage you to humbly pray this prayer to Him right now. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive all my sins. I know I'm not good enough. I know I never can be good enough. So today, I'm trusting totally and completely in you. Without you, I have no hope. Come into my life. Change me. Make me new. Give me the desire to give my all to you. Because you love me so much. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer.